This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. President Trump claims victory. Joe Biden says, hold on. It's not my place or Donald Trump's place to declare who's won this election. That's the decision of the American people. But I'm optimistic about this outcome. In the meantime, we wait and wonder what's next for our divided nation. This is a special edition of Life on the Margins. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas, and eventually the Kenyans didn't have much. Welcome to Life on the Margins. I'm Enrique Cerna. I'm Florangela Davila. And I'm Marcus Harrison Green. Well, here we are. It is the day after, and I think that... Uh, if you're like me, you probably were hoping uh, that things would be all settled by now, but obviously they aren't, and who knows when they will be. I was feeling quite hopeful yesterday, and then woke up this morning feeling not so much, but still trying to get the hope back. I've been clutching my rosary again, as I have been throughout uh, yesterday and overnight and all that stuff. So how are you guys feeling? Floor? Well, I just smiled because uh, you're Latino and you have a rosary. I'm Latina. I do not have a rosary. And right there shows the significance in terms of how we are not a monolith. So let me just get get that out of the way. That's right. And then all you got to do is look at Florida and Arizona to really understand that in Florida, they have those pockets and they are Cuban and they are Venezuelan. And they are Trumpers. And in Arizona, you have uh, Mexicans, and they are not. Because at this point, they are uh, putting Biden over the top there in Arizona, which is a a big get at this point. So I don't know. But I I think African-Americans really are helping him out in in other places, like Michigan, Wisconsin. They're also, I know, if if Twitter and and my uh text threads or any indication there's there's also a lot of disappointment uh, there are a lot of folks who are like how in the world can half this country see the same exact person that i've seen over the, the course of this last four years hear the same things out of his mouth that i've heard the last four years and know the person <laughs> that i know over the last four years and still vote for the guy right I, it, some polls show that more Republicans actually voted for him this go around than last. I want to say 93% in 2020 versus 90% in 2016. And then it, it does look like he's actually done marginally better in most categories, ironically enough, outside of white males. And so it's kind of like, wait, what's going on here? Right? I, I saw one uh, meme yesterday. It said, America, the, the series final. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's i'll be honest it's hard not to feel a little downcast uh today but uh you know it is only one day uh it is troubling there's no doubt about it because it, it just shows you how divided we are and how those divisions are deeper and that even if biden wins digging out of the hole of Trump for the past four years is going to be very hard. And there's just a lot of ugliness out there. 
Well, it's going to be hard to do, too, if we have a it's looking like the Senate will most likely stay Republican. So you're going to have a divided government. And I'm just not sure how we unify at this point. Right. Uh, you, you know, I'm hopeful that maybe it can happen. I just I'm just trying to locate the pathway forward at this point, though. What troubles you the most, Florangela? Well, a question that keeps getting asked is the, the troubling, but also what's getting you giving you hope. And honestly, I'm focused on the next generation, the younger generation. Just at a conversation with folks who were providing shuttles to voting places here in, in South Seattle. And I'm just, I'm inspired. I think I'm, I'm just kind of putting my blinders on and looking at that demographic, browner, blacker, much more aware of what the reality has been for folks of color, their enthusiasm they have just to not only vote, but to share that action. That to me is inspiring. I'm focused on some of the firsts that have taken place here in Washington state. Some of the, the barriers that have started are being broken. Honestly, I, I wasn't hopeful yesterday. I think the racism that we've seen, honestly, I think you have to sort of get to the most critical disappointing point and place in the country before things rebound. And I have kind of steeled myself throughout the pandemic, throughout the last four years. Nothing shocks me in terms of the results. What was the most disturbing was the disinformation, the falsities that Trump was saying last night. That to me is the most frightening. Yeah, I watched his statement that he gave at about two o'clock in the morning when he came out and... I thought it was kind of strange. It was the most disjointed thing. And then on top of that, it, it didn't make any sense of what he was talking about. And again, the lying. It, this is the thing that gets me is that people have just gotten so used to it. They just, and particularly even his camp, they just accept it. So uh, last night, Marcus and I were part of Converge Media's coverage. And there were Lola Peters, who was a column, who's a columnist for uh, Crosscut as well as for South Seattle Emerald. She said some things that I thought were very inspiring. And just in the fact that she says, well, you know, kind of what you said, it, it, Florangela, is that you got to focus on the next generation, but just got to get out of bed and keep on going. And as tough as this is, I think you know, everybody would have liked to have had a landslide of some sort, but there's still so much work to be done. But there are some positives. I mean, look at the fact that at the, in the Washington State Supreme Court, the first uh, Native woman being elected also uh, African-American woman who had been appointed, two women that had been appointed by Jay Ensley, and they both won, and uh, handily, those were good signs. You had, what, I think eight African-American women that were running in the legislature, and uh, while not all of them were winning, there were a couple of cases where they were winning in, in areas that nobody thought they probably could win, and those are hopeful signs. So I guess we just have to hold on and keep hope alive, huh? To, to quote Jesse Jackson, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> All right. Well, let's buck up here and uh, let's move on and, and talk to our guests and see how they're feeling. 
Well, we're joined now by Estela Ortega, Executive Director of El Centro de la Raza, and also joining us is Michelle Storms, Executive Director of ACLU Washington. Thank you both for joining us. Appreciate it very much. Estela, let me begin with you. So what's your, your thoughts about where we are right now, this kind of black hole, it seems? Yeah, well, you know, the yesterday when I started my day off, I read a couple of articles, and I assume that we're talking about the national election, right. because I yes. think that's where my, my head is at at this point. But I read these two articles that said Biden was going to gonna lose and, and get, you know, get yourself ready. And I actually got sick. I felt sick of my stomach that I was reading that, and that was a, a terrible way to start the day off. But, you know, obviously this morning we we have some hope, you know, the fact that he just won Wisconsin and, you know, obviously um, Trump is going to ask for a recount and obviously that's his right when the votes are so close. And so I think we, we have some hope there. And again, the projections are that Biden is going to win and if Trump starts challenging, and I think we as a people, I was listening to somebody, I think it was maybe Michael Moore that was saying, it's not that it should be about what are we going to do if Donald Trump doesn't concede, because he can, he has the right to do that. No president has ever really done that in modern history. And if he doesn't concede, a whole set of other things begin to happen. And we as, as a people in the United States have got to fight back and organize. The only way that we can have hope is that we're, if we're ready to get out and be in the streets protesting about this and demanding that he get out of the White House. Michelle? Hi. Yes. Thank you. I really love uh, a lot of what Estella said about our role and, and what we need to do as the people, but I want to back up a little bit and say this, you know, so I, I'm the lead of the American Civil Liberties of Washington State, and our organization is a nonpartisan organization, and we hold all presidents, all governments accountable. And I think the thing about the past four years that we have had, when our role is to look at uh, democracy and whether the Constitution is being upheld, we have had four years of really quite the opposite, right? We have had four years of an assault on people who are Muslim, people who are immigrants. We have seen those, and that's been highly problematic. So obviously thinking that we would have to have more of that is, is devastating to think about. So here we are right now where it's just pretty neck and neck, right? And it's anxiety producing for everyone. And then on top of that, we have our current president saying that he absolutely plans to challenge or he wanted he wanted the the he, he said he wanted the voting to stop. Well, of course, the voting had already stopped. Right. It was more he wanted the counting to stop. But that's not how that works. Like this still is a democracy and every vote counts. And we are going to make absolutely certain that every single vote gets counted. That's what's important right now. Yeah. Michelle, so I have to ask you, I mean, in, in your role with uh, the ACLU, what does this mean now in, in terms of making sure that the right to vote it is, you know, protected in the, there's just a Los Angeles Times story I read this morning that said in these, some of these swing states that 
Black and Latinx votes have been rejected, you know, two to one versus uh, white folks' uh, votes. Right. You know, that's deeply disturbing. And I think the other thing that we know is true is with the people who have requested mail-in ballots. So, you know, here in Washington, we all get one, right? But in many of the other states, people had to request it. And in certain states, we know absolutely, we have 83 million nationwide who requested a mail-in ballot. In certain states, it's clear that the vast majority of people who requested mail-in ballots are people of color. So when we get into a frame where we're rejecting those votes, it's essentially a form of disenfranchisement. And we really have a lot of work to do around voting rights in this country. When the Shelby case passed to the Supreme Court a few years ago, that lifted the restrictions on states and their ability to suppress the vote, it very quickly turned us back to a 1960s kind of scenario where all of a sudden all these requirements were being put on vote, particularly in those southern states. And this is work the ACLU is doing, and it is something that all of us have to fight for. Voting is central to our ability to have a democratic process and for everyone to be able to participate. Michelle, when it comes to rhetoric, where are we in terms of the spectrum moving from, say, you know, racist rhetoric and sexist rhetoric and xenophobic rhetoric to the point of just being outright destructive? How do we accept and or witness that when it comes to free speech and what what was coming out of what Trump said late last night or early this morning? Oh, you were just wading into deeply painful territory, right? We, of course, live in a country where people are free to say what they want to say, and that's a bedrock, uh, you know, of our sort of constitutional jurisprudence. What we are seeing is an absolute inflaming of, I guess, the worst of people's fears about so-called other. Yeah, it's just, it's just bad. It's just about exclusion. It is about upholding very old and what we would have hoped are long thrown away ideas about how to live together in a society. So we really want to stand for a future where everyone belongs and where what we talk about is how to make that be possible and not talk about things like, you know, not having low income people in your neighborhoods as code for people of color or any of those kinds of comments. That's, that's what we really have to work for as a community and as a society. Estella, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the Latino vote. Looking at the results so far, as far as Florida is concerned, the Latino vote there helped Trump, particularly in uh, Miami-Dade County. That Latino vote is mainly Cuban uh, and I think also Venezuelan. And then you look in Arizona, where it's uh, mainly uh, Mexican descent, and there's uh, obviously making a difference there in helping Biden uh, as he is leading and looks like he's going to carry Arizona at this point. The networks have, some have said that he's a winner there and it could be a big exactly. difference. So big difference in, in the different Latino populations. There are Latinos nationally who have been working to build the Republican Party. I mean, since the time of, of Nixon and Reagan. And so sort of the, the stats out there are that out of the 32 million Latinos who are eligible to vote, 28 to 
would be voting, you know, for Trump. And part of it is the Trump agenda resonates with those people in terms of paying less taxes, anti-regulation, some of sort of the issues around abortion. I mean, I hate to say that, but I even have some family members in Texas who voted for Trump because, you know, they're hunters. And it's like, he's going to, Biden is going to take away our guns, you know, take, take away the Second Amendment from us. So I don't think that the Democratic Party should take take for granted, you know, if you will, the Latino vote. And there was criticism around that the Democratic Party nationally had not responded in trying to organize Latinos, just say as, you know, how Bernie Sanders did with Chuck Rocha out of uh, Texas, who he hired as one of his main people to organize the Latino community. And you saw the difference in the vote in terms of how Latinos came out in force for Bernie uh, across the country. And yes, and just going back to where you're referring to the Cubans and la gente de, uh, from Venezuela, certainly theirs is that they're anti-communist and the fact that Trump was continually talking about socialism, you know, those two sectors were not going to be voting, at least the older ones weren't going going to be voting for, for a democratic ticket. So in the final analysis, the Latino people cannot be taken for granted. And the Biden campaign, probably in the last, I don't know, couple of months started looking at organizing the Latino community. And it wasn't just Obviously, it helped, but it wasn't early enough to really get people totally, totally on board. If you look at how many people voted for Trump, I mean, it's, it's, it's worrisome. It looks like the country is divided. There's white supremacists. You know, there's the religious right. You know, obviously, they think he's doing a good job about the economy. Again, the whole gun issue and just he just had so many people from different vantage points that were supporting him that have led to the numbers that that he's getting, where it looks like it's kind of half and half of the American people who who voted are supporting that Trump agenda. Well, I think that that's the one thing that stands out the most to me is, and particularly with the results we're, we're seeing right now, is the divisions that we've had seem to be even amplified even more because I think many had expected uh, maybe Biden would would do so much better and there wouldn't be this kind of nail-biting situation. But our divisions in this country are so deep right now that it's it's darn right scary. Michelle? I, I so agree with you. It is terrifying. And, you know, I was talking with a friend this morning on this topic and we were reflecting that there is very long, hard and difficult work ahead for us in better coming to know and understand each other in this country. And then actually, you know, the phrase truth and reconciliation came up. One of the things that seems to have been an area for backlash is we have been having deep conversations about, for example, the loss of Black lives at the hands of police, the inhumane treatment of immigrants at the borders, particularly the southern border, and raising the questions of, 
you know, racial hatred of racism and nativism and how that uh, shows up in our country um, in the same in the way that indigenous people have been treated, right? So we've been raising and people have really been showing up in the streets and talking about this. And so then, you know, you have the backlash, the sort of all lives matter backlash and so on. And I look at our country and I say it was founded on the backs of genocide of indigenous people. It was founded on the forced labor of people, you know, taken from African shores. And that is who we are. So we have to come to a reckoning of that and say, who can we be? Who can we be knowing our origins, knowing how it started, knowing that if we want to do right by each other, we have to understand our history and seek to overcome it. But it does seem that instead, for some folks, it's kind of like, we don't want to talk about that history or that's behind us, it doesn't matter. But there is generational harm, huge generational harm from our origins. And so I know that a lot of our division relates to that and the inability and unwillingness of some to come to grips with who we are and therefore decide who will we be. Michelle, how do we engage in that conversation? It seems like so many Americans are quite frankly just scared of each other. You, we've seen the uptick in folks buying guns. Even here in Washington state, there was a, they did a, you know, September, from September 2019 to September of 2020, there's an, an increase of, in gun ownership of, of 93%. How do we come together to sort of dialogue around the truth, right? I mean, there's there's that old saying that we can't talk about the truth in America because nobody can seem to agree on exactly what the truth actually is. Right. I mean, it's funny about that because, I mean, I, I feel like there's pretty, plenty of record and historical documents on, on what the truth is, but uh, I guess I'll leave that alone for here. You know, I am not an expert on like this truth and reconciliation concept, right? But, you know, South Africa has pulled it off, right? There have been a lot of countries and cultures where that long hard work has been engaged in. And it's not like you can do that and automatically you magically have full, you know, mutual appreciation and regard, although that would be nice. But I think we would just have to take a page out of the book of people who've tried it and then forge our own path because something has got to shift. And I guess that I would add is that we have to really work at, I mean, what is it, what does it really mean to be a democratic nation? those values? What are those ideals? Because if you talk to the average person, American person, they don't know. I mean, they just, those things are not like front and centered. And those of us who are involved in social justice work and trying to build a better world, those values are there for us. And so we need to figure out a way to how to educate the American people about those things and that there is a constant conversation around them and how do you know how do we manifest those in our daily lives and i have to jump behind that because estella is right on we long ago really stopped teaching in the schools like civics education and understanding separation of church and state and checks and balances and what democracy really is. What democracy really is, is something beautiful and powerful and participatory and inclusive. 
and then the conflation with patriotism and what patriotism seems to have become, what that word has seems to have become. Because to me, to be patriotic, of course, this is our you know ACLU motto: dissent is patriotic. But that is patriotic, right? To be able to say. I don't agree or, you know, our country has flaws, but I still care about it and love it anyway and want to live here and want to make a way for myself and my people and your people and all of our people, right? That is exactly a great starting point. I'm so glad Estella said that. Well, it's patriotic to wear a mask, isn't it? Well, that's where I'm coming from. I mean, I think, you know, I I can, (laughs) as as a brown woman in her 50s, I can understand the racism in this country and the racist perspectives that people still hold. That that doesn't surprise me. What really confounds me right now and in, in, the, in the last eight, nine months is the disregard for the decency, the disregard that people have for another human being and the way it has been epitomized in the act of to wear a mask or to not wear a mask. The selfishness, the disregard, the, the sense that I don't have to do this. It impinges on my rights in terms of my behavior. A reporter, Ashley Gross, and I had a conversation early on where there is some basic etiquette that we're asked to do. Wear shoes when you go supermarket shopping. You know, wear a shirt. There are signs that say that. I don't understand how that issue has become so divisive and has become a symbol of who's patriotic and who's not. Well, I guess I, what I would, I, there's a couple of things I guess I would like to say about that is that so there is this spirit of rugged individualism in our country. And it's like, what's best for me and what, what I want to do. And so that's, that's even before COVID and that's even before Donald Trump, but Donald Trump has basically fired that up. And I guess my view around, you know, the mask and the fact that he knew for so long about COVID before it was announced to the American people is that, and and I don't want to be, you know, a paranoid person or whatever, but COVID certainly has disrupted. Part of his strategy could have been that to disrupt everything that's going on in in society and hoping then that people wouldn't go out and vote. And then I've read analysis also that the fact that uh, low-income people, people of color, Latinos, African-Americans, Indians, that we have been hit the hardest by COVID. And so was this a strategy also for ethnic cleansing that I've read some articles about that? And so, I mean, it's still, it's, in the final analysis, it still goes back to Trump and his leadership as the president to give good leadership and direction to the people so that uh, we wouldn't have the kind of cases. Because if you read about what's happening in the rest of the world, especially in Asia, I mean, people are wearing masks and, and they're, they're controlled. I mean, the amount of cases that are controlled from I don't know, somebody was telling me about some Asian country where there, maybe it was Vietnam, that there's only like maybe a couple of thousand cases within that country. Well, you know, I think it all comes down to leadership and the also the fact that if you don't have that person at the top setting the example, uh, which that has not been the case for wearing a mask or listening to science and all of those things, 
that sends you such mixed messages and only deepens the divisions. For the sake of time, I'm going to ask uh, the two of you uh, just to maybe give us a sense of as we go forward here, how do we regain our sanity and our humanity at this time? Michelle, let me start with you. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> how do we how do we regain our humanity? Well, and our sanity. And our sanity, right. So for our sanity, you know, I think about individual care and community care. You know, I've been saying to the staff a lot, we can't stay up all night every night, you know, hitting refresh on the browser or working nonstop when this is long haul work. Because this is long haul work to come to a place in our country where we really do understand what democracy is and we uphold it for each other. And whether we agree with our neighbor or not, we want them to have as good a life as we want for ourselves. So we have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of our communities. We have to you know, look out for our neighbor, right? That's, that's a part of sanity and humanity. And then, you know, as far as these deep, deep divides, I, I wish I knew the solution. I wish I knew what to say. But I do know that, uh, you know, for myself, I'm going to continue to fight for our country to be a place that, regardless of your gender, or gender identity, or race, or religion, or, you know, sexual orientation, your ability, whatever it is, that you can live your life and will always continue to fight for the laws and the policies that will make that possible and that will fight against hatred and exclusion. So that's the best I've got in this moment. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. Okay, uh, Estella, you're up. Well, yes, and I agree with everything Michelle has said. I would add that we're in a time where we have to defend community, we have to defend each other, we have to defend our democracy and to fight for it. And there are things that I'm hoping that if Biden wins, that we as a people are going to demand that we expand the Supreme Court because we cannot wait for 30, 40, 50 years to make change. I mean, right now, what, it's 6-3. That Supreme Court can, can do whatever it wants to at this point because they're in control. So we need to expand the Supreme Court, and it hasn't been expanded since, what, the, somewhere in the mid-1800s. And we need to do away with the Electoral College. And those are things that I think that we, as a people all over this country, should organize for. And somebody that's been doing social justice work for the last 50 years, we have, that's where, for me, that's where my sanity is. That's where my hope is, is that when we are working together and making change, that's when you feel more sane because you know you're doing something together to make change in our country. All right. You two give me a sense of hope. You know, I've been trying to stay hopeful as it is, but it's been a struggle. But uh, I'm glad you guys are in our community and giving us that sense of hope and, and the work that you do, which is so important. Thank you so much, Michelle Storms of the ACLU, Washington, also Estela Ortega of El Centro de la Raza. Thank you, and we'll be right back. Life on the Margins is a production of the South Seattle Emerald. Our music is courtesy of Seattle artist Dre's. 
Our producers are Jeff Shaw and Hans Anderson. Stay safe, be well, wear a mask. We'll talk more later. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was our hood until we and Seacrest.